HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, this is Michael Harlan Durkel, your host of the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Today's sponsor is TechServe. TechServe is New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider serving individual customers, creative professionals, and Fortune 100 companies. TechServe has built solid reputations in its expertise in technology, sales, and service. As a company that believes in honest and forthright business practices, TechServe is proud to sponsor Heritage Radio Network, the promotion of sustainable lifestyles. I'd like to uh, introduce our guest today, Michael Esconis, the executive pastry chef at Le Bernardin, um, who I met a whole bunch of years ago. I don't know where. I don't know when. That's not important. But have always had a, a kinship and understanding about the process, uh, uh, not necessarily of plating, but of food in general. Um, not just the process of how do you make this, but why do you make this and where does it come from? Um, so Michael is here today to kind of talk through the emotions and understandings he has that you don't usually get to see when you're dining at Le Brandon, which if you have not done, uh, save up. It is quite exquisite, one of the four-store restaurants in New York City. So thank you to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Um, first of all, I'd like to say wonderful website uh is it called like a work pad the there are two actually yeah um, there's uh sort of the more literary blog yeah that's <laughs> not too pretentious um that's called notes from the kitchen yeah and then more of a sort of uh documentary of the work that we do in the kitchen every day and that's the michaelaskonis.typepad.com what's the right. notes from the kitchen um that one is you know i actually i i shortened yeah the, <laughs> the the address so so the the original one is michael-lasconis.com yeah and then the second one the workbook is mlasconis.com yeah and if you are um you know a burgeoning pastry chef read the workbook i've made the macaroons in there uh <laughs> undeniably amazing thank you you know you can't get like anything like that uh 
you have to fly to Paris. And, well, you know, I, you know, it was important for me to uh, to create something that that might be of use to other pastry chefs and actually put something up of content. Yeah, there's a lot out there that. It's a lot of static on the internet. Yeah. Did I also mention he's one of the most giving and sharing pastry chefs out there? Um, there's a great community within the kitchen, uh, and you have a couple friends who we'll talk about and conversations you've had with them, but um, ask him a question, he'll respond. Uh, wanted to kind of jump into the idea, the analogy of cooking and architecture and applied arts and crafts and even photography to pastry. Um, I had stopped in La Bernadette once, actually photographed a day with Michael in his kitchen, uh, which I think can be found on the notes in the kitchen. Yeah, there, I, I stole a few of your yeah, images. <laughs> completely fine. Uh, <laughs> like I said, sharing, sharing. Um, and showed me this amazing book, uh, and it was simply just portraits. It's mm. Portraits of the Chefs uh, by Hervé Amiard. Um, if you know these names, uh, Pierre Garnier, uh, Pierre Hermé, I think Alain Ducasse was in there, too. All, all the big French guys. It was... It, it was awesome. I mean, it was, I was in awe, you know, absolutely awesome. Thunderstruck. Killer. Simply portraits. Mm -hmm. I mean, showing them black and white, standing there with very few elements of the kitchen. I think like Pierre Hermé uh, had a toque on, kind of made him look like the Michelin man. Uh, yeah, but they, they all told a story though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of reminiscent of, in a, a, I don't know who the, the photographer was, but there was a great series back, I think, at the turn of the century. And it might have been a, a French photographer who was who was photographing um, just regular laborers. Yeah. And and sort of in their garb or whatever. But, but Oh, the German Occupations uh, by August Stanler. There you yeah, go. Yeah. And, you know, so they were kind of taken out of their context, just put in front of a, a blank wall. But you kind of got the essence of what they were about just by their uniform or the tools they were holding. Yeah. But I mean, it was it was completely awe inspiring just to see these people dressed down because the the one thing that happens more so with pastry, I think, than with executive chefs, uh, you know, hotline, is that they're stuck way, way, way back in the kitchen or Sometimes downstairs. Feel like that, yeah, downstairs <laughs> in the basement. Uh, yeah, believe me, there there isn't necessarily a rift between boh and foh. Uh, they like staying away from the people. That's why they chose that profession. But. Michael gets out there, and I don't mean in the restaurant, but gets out there in the art world and gets inspired by uh, um, architecture, by, you know, galleries. Most recently, uh, talking about Alexander Calder, an mm -hmm. exhibition. Where was it? At the Whitney? I, I believe that was at the Whitney, and, and I, it feels like it was just a few months ago. Yeah. It was probably <laughs> two years ago now. Um, and and that, was, that was kind of awe-inspiring on many levels. Uh, the first thing that struck me, it was... It was uh, uh, wasn't even a full retrospective. It was just um, a showing of about five years worth of work, and the prolificness of that guy was was astounding. Yeah, and and you saw a progression from you know one experiment to the next, and and you saw a, a progression of 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 ideas and maturity and uh, technical prowess um, that I think as as chefs we we kind of mirror that that uh, that urge to continue to hone our craft yeah i think a funny analogy would be a lot of people think alexander Calder just makes you know twisted metal and right. mobiles um and a lot of pastry chefs just throw on a canela sorbet or ice cream afterwards but there is a true craft to being able to develop uh, um, a vision or the best and you know that that's where he comes into play exactly and i remember you know strolling through that exhibit um i don't really do the 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 sugar and chocolate showpiece thing too much um but i was struck by how much 
some of his sculptures, both the the uh, the uh, kinetic and the stationary, kind of mirrored a lot of the work being done by pastry chefs and all the the big competitions, the the um, Coupe de Monde and and whatnot. Um, but one thing that you actually mentioned in a conversation that we had, um, one of the things I try to do with with my plating style, well. I take inspiration from all these sources and sometimes from architecture and sometimes from painting. They're, they're never directly expressed on the plate. It's all kind of jumbled up in, yeah. in the mind and then it gets pushed through a filter and, and somehow it's in there. But one thing that I do um, gravitate towards is, is mixing of hard edges. You know, we have molds that are perfect spheres and perfect uh, rectangles. Kind of combining those hard edges with... Um, softer, more organic, indeterminate shapes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think if I were to pin down a, a presentation style, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. And that was something you see a lot with, with Calder. Yeah, yeah. And with Calder, who was very much influenced by Piet Mondrian, uh, there was a felicitous meeting between the two, mm-hmm. which kind of was that amalgamation. So um, talk about pinpointing, you know, uh, understanding an art movement to be inspired by that. That's an excellent one. And, and another thing too that I mean, a lot of his work is is bound in uh, in the realm of physics. I yeah, mean, he's dealing with gravity. He's dealing with um, you know external forces uh, manipulating the work, and that's actually one of the biggest challenges of a pastry chef. Yeah, you know, we're trying to maintain a certain texture at a certain temperature, trying to stand things up on end to a certain degree. Um, so I can definitely appreciate. Yeah, you know. My biggest challenge sometimes is gravity. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people can say that. And even outside of the pastry world, I mean, damn gravity. But uh, uh, Michael was also saying that the standardization of molds and shapes sometimes are limiting in the pastry kitchen. Sure, sure. And, you know, and you know, God knows that these companies are coming out with ever more variety of things. Now, what are the big names? Like Ateco. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're actually more probably in the realm of... Uh, cake decorating and stuff yeah. but there's a lot of european companies um Demarle is one they kind of basically made the uh, all the the silicone yeah. flexible molds um and that and that's something i've i've talked to uh alex stupak over at wd50 about and he's kind of been outspoken and and being sort of anti-mold um and so he's basically doing a lot of things himself with you know, cut pieces of plastic and masking tape. Yeah. And, you know, people think of the, the kitchen at WD-50 as being high-tech, and, you know, <clears throat> I, I think I heard Alex once say that, you know, it's really more about arts and crafts. <laughs> but you can eat the glue. There you go. Yeah. Um, wh- what's also kind of interesting is that a lot of the vocabulary uh, being used to talk about these techniques is kind of, more and more derivative of talking about art. I mean, sure. there was a standardization about, you know, chocolate and how to describe it and explain the process. But what are new pieces of vocabulary or, you know, phrases? I, know. I mean, I, I can definitely tell you some things that interest me on a personal level. Um, and a lot of things, a lot of these things are things I don't even know that can be expressed, but I think it's worth yeah. going through the motions and asking the questions. You know, taking any kind of... Uh, of other art form, um, writing, um, you know, how do you create, um, a rhyming couplet in food? Is it <laughs> yeah. possible? Yeah. You know, what is the culinary equivalent of the ellipse? Yeah. You know, the dot, 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 um, a three little dabs is something on a plate. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what is culinary alliteration? Yeah. You know, is it beats 
barley, blueberry, and I, I don't know. Um, and I think those are kind of fun ideas to play with. Um, music, I, I, I love thinking about music in terms of food. And um, I often do this with another pastry chef friend of mine, uh, Brooks Headley over at Del Posto, who's actually a, a, a pretty accomplished musician. You know, we've talked about, you know, well, if you listen to old Sonic Youth, you know, the, the feedback was in perfect harmony. And, and you listen to that stuff and it's like, it wouldn't sound the same without that, that, that feedback or yeah. that, that dissonance. You know, how do you create that dissonance in food? Or, or, or Thelonious Monk, who famously would play the wrong note. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounded amazing. Yeah. You know, what, you know, do we do that with, uh, with uh, bitter counterpoints in a, in, in a dish or, or with very acidic counterpoints? But, it, you know, at the end of the day, it still has to sound beautiful. It has to yeah. look beautiful. It has, it has to, to taste be good. delicious dissonance. Yeah. Um, another point that you brought up, actually, about food that was interesting is the idea of playing live versus recording in the studio. So rather than just, you know, going and buying a prepackaged Twinkie, you know, having to create the same Twinkie every day. Sure. And, 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 and it will affect how you construct a dish. Yeah. Just like it, you know, a, a, a song that's written just to be recorded in the studio, you know, well, that might be the dish that I do for a photo shoot for art culinaire. You know, if you look at that magazine, so much of it isn't really based in reproducible reality yeah so nor do i eat from that perspective i mean i don't sit underneath the table looking (laughs) up at almost a negative 10 degree angle but i mean i love yeah magazine of course fantastic uh, magazine you know so so there's a real world and and you know and even um from from con you know venue to venue it's a different context if i were um working in a 20 seat restaurant you know where we did 50 covers a night uh, the food might be different than at La Bernardin where yeah. we're doing a couple hundred. Yeah. And especially in what kind of setting it is. Yeah. Four-star, uh, multi-course, minardies, you know. There's, there's a lot more than just, you know, a canal of ice cream on top of a molten chocolate cake. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> but... Um, you had also discussed the idea of highbrow versus lowbrow, which mm. I f- find hilarious. Uh, who was Robert Williams? Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, I... I this the, the kind of trend that's been happening in in, in dining the the past I don't know I think it started in France a decade ago sort of the casual what doesn't the casually <laughs> refined bistro you yeah know, it was where all the the cooks from the four star places or three star places you know they they just wanted to open up a simple bistro um, they were using inexpensive cuts of meat and what have you but they were doing amazing food um, with no tablecloths no pretension um, is that is that making highbrow lowbrow or the other way around you know is is a is a place like momofuku is that like robert williams being shown in a in a fine art gallery yeah or you know um you know uh, trying to think of you know other analogies you know the the ubiquitous ed hardy t-shirt now yeah (laughs) you know that was lowbrow that went highbrow and now it's back to lowbrow yeah It's, it's interesting and i think food kind of has those same trajectories yeah and speaking of those influences as as you said you know calder has influenced your plating and your design do lowbrow things like ed hardy ever sure i mean actually i i almost think that i mean what's what's the 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 common subtext in a lot of um i don't know what's what's the right word for it lowbrow art yeah um industrial art sure Uh, i mean there's there's always an ironic subtext yeah. running through a lot of that and and i think um there has been a lot of irony in in food 
um, as, as of late, um, especially kind of pulling on those n- nostalgic uh, heartstrings. Um, you know, that's when you start to see pop rocks and desserts or, yeah. you know, I'm guilty of it too. I have a dessert right now where we, we literally, we take Rice Krispies <laughs> and we, we, you know, we manipulate them a little bit, but they're still Rice Krispies. Yeah. Or, you know, look at most of the menu at WD-50, like you were saying that it's, um, it's all kind of rooted in nostalgia. It's all familiar yeah. things that have just been, been uh, manipulated. So it's all about kind of understanding and cooking for your demographic. And we're going to use this as a quick break. We'll be right back with Michael Oskonis, a pastry chef at Le Bernardin, and a special call-in guest, hopefully. We'll see. Awesome. But we'll be uh, back in a sec. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, and you've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, and you're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. We have a call-in guest, Francis Lamb of Salon.com backslash food. Hello, Francis. <laughs> you're very gracious to give the full link. That's very... <laughs> well, I didn't do www because I thought that was understood. Because <laughs> it's HTTP. Yeah. Well, anyway, Excellent. hi, great to talk with you. Excellent. Francis for uh, me. Uh, is a wonderful writer, used to write for Gourmet, uh, one of my favorite pieces about calling yourself a cook rather than a chef, actually, which we might talk about, um, but is also a good friend of Michael Esconis, and they've delved into a lot of discussions on similar topics that we've hit thus far, but we're going to kind of talk about the chef's artistic intent. We were just recently talking about uh, the difference between highbrow and lowbrow uh, food and inspiration, but also cooking for a demographic, and I know you and Michael have talked about, you know, What's a chef's role? Uh, how important is the enjoyment of the end product? And how well is the message conveyed? Um, have you ever dined at Le Bernardin? I have, Excellent. thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> um, and did you get it? Did you understand Michael's desserts? Yeah, I, I did. And I said, you know, maybe it's a little bit funny to be talking about them with him on the line. But, <laughs> That's all right. you know, it was... <laughs> But it was very clear that they were very much about pleasure. Yeah. You know, it was very clear that they were about enjoyment. And, I mean, one of the things I love, one of the reasons why I love uh, the conversation I've had with him is because that comes through very much in his cuisine. It comes through, yeah, and he articulates that really beautifully. Um, 
meanwhile, you know, and, and I think that as a role, his role as a pastry chef, I think, also influences that. I think that he, you know, he's talked about the idea that uh, pastry is going to be about making people happy. It has a sort of different function in the meal and a different function of experience than, than what the savory kitchen is going to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were also talking about the idea of, you know, new vocabulary about food, about food writing, uh, maybe using art, but do you get to talk about emotions? And this seemingly is what you're saying, that he created a completely different mood and emotion than the rest of the meal. But how do you, you know, evoke such things as, what was Michael saying uh, to me before, melancholy? And sure. Well, I mean, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, kind of what we were initially geeking out about, you yeah. know, was, you know, the artistic intent and, and how do we relay that to the diner when, I mean, you have to be honest with yourself as, as a chef that not everybody cares to, to know the story. <laughs> right. It's true. And, and I, and I think the, the question that, that Francis threw back at me was, well, how do we get people to care Yeah. about if that presentation was inspired by Calder or if you were trying to hit that wrong note, like Thelonious Monk or, or whatever the, you know, you know, whatever the, the, uh, the, emotion you're trying to evoke is yeah and francis have you figured out a solution how do we get people to care <laughs> well i mean i have uh, i'm gonna start a consulting firm very soon yeah. so I give it away on the air yeah but i mean i think the one thing that's really interesting and uh, you know something that i used to teach writing and uh, a lot of my students uh, and literature and, and and a lot of my students um you know, one thing I would often caution people against is, you know, trying to get too much into authorial intent. Um, you know, trying to, too much to read into, you know, snippets of the writer's biography that you know and trying to sort of like divine, well, why are they saying this and why are they trying to say this way and have that cloud too much your experience of the work itself. Um, and I think that in, in, in cuisine, you know, it's kind of the opposite problem, which is a no one wants to do that. No one tries to do that. Um, I mean, it's not true that no one does, but I, I think that you know, there is something so primal, obviously, about eating that I think the natural thing or maybe the, the, the really the instinctive way to engage with food is to eat it and then analyze, taste good, bad, and then everything else stems from that. You know, I think we're so hard. And, and I, think the, I think, you know, there's... The idea that um, the taste good bad thing too. I mean, there there are certainly we've developed, but you know there were really instinctive reasons for why certain flavors or certain tastes are hardwired for us to like, and certain ones you know were hardwired to not like. You know, uh, so many toxins in so many toxins have a bitter flavor, and so I think so at some point like. We've just learned to avoid things that yeah. tend to be bitter. Except at the and same time, I, I was one of those kids that put my tongue on a battery. You know, because I actually liked that sensation and flavor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you've evolved beyond you know, our original oh, yeah. purpose of, so, of, our, of, our, of our machinery. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> or just you know, trying but, to so, become so things like that. So I, I think that a lot of people have a really hard time. So I, I, one, of the, one of the things that really uh, Michael inspired me to think about um, was how is it then that you know how what does it mean what does it mean for a chef as an artist if there's a whole range of reactions and emotions you have to kind of actively avoid people feeling 
Yeah. Right? Mm. Yeah, I think with visual arts, with other, so many other arts, you know, you can push people, you can challenge people and, and throw things in their face that are ugly or that we would, you know, typically think of as ugly or are harsh or, you know, you can do that stuff and not everyone's going to respond to it in a way that, you know, you like, but a lot of people will be willing to go there with you. Yeah. So uh, you, you're kind of saying how much of the eating experience is aesthetic versus, you know, uh, it's not olfactory. It's a, uh, you know, umami is flavor. Yeah. 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 How, yeah. how much of it is just like, you know, you, you, again, like this sort of like really instinctive, like I need food kind of reaction to it. And, you know, if you decide as a chef slash artist tomorrow, I'm going to really push the boundaries of, like you said, melancholy or push the boundaries of um, how a diner is going to feel sad or nervous or scared or horrified. No one's coming back to your restaurant. <laughs> like, well, but there no are there are cases where that. where you know there are a handful of of chefs out there who, you know, a visit to their restaurant is akin to going to a, a performance art piece. Um, sure, as uh, Alinea Michael had mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, Alinea is a great example, and of course, you know that was um, I think it's safe to say that's highly influenced by Albuli and Farron Adria. Um, you know, uh, there are so many aspects of the the meal at Alinea that. Um, that kind of play into that performance and there's a lot of diner interaction and it's almost like Grant is creating a dialogue between the chef and, and the diner um, and then you know there's the, the famous I think it was maybe a season or two ago um, where come dessert the uh, the table if it wasn't already covered in some sort of uh, latex yeah. covering a latex mat was basically stretched over the table and your p- table became the plate um, someone who would come table side and basically plate the dessert directly on the table. Yeah. So it was very primal. Um, but but I, I, I think only a few people can get away with that. Yeah, well, that also extends the dialogue between the chef and the diner because now you have someone to ask questions of and see the process, mm-hmm. and it makes it not just intimate but exposed. Um, is that something that you ever mm-hmm. want to approach? Sure. I mean, like I said, it's something I, I think about all the time. I think about how to use these devices from other uh, art forms or, or crafts, and, and how do we use that in, in cooking? And is it useful? Um, and and is the end result delicious? Michael was also mentioning a conversation that you um, had with him, Francis, about the idea of um, politicizing food, uh, maybe in a similar way of artistic propaganda. Um, so, I mean, past emotion, can you carry a message with a dessert? Hmm. I mean, do we already do that with, um, I mean, are we now forced to do that yeah. with our choice of ingredients? Yeah. And so, will we in the future be forced to do that again with um, energy sources? Um, you know, I'm not, I don't know that we can do a, a culinary version of Guernica, you <laughs> yeah. know, or something like that. But, you know, um, black and white chocolate. Right? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not think about it? Yeah. So, um, Francis, anything else you'd like to interject? Because I know that you and Michael have had a lot of these heady, as you said, geeked out conversations <laughs> about food in general. Uh, not as many as I'd like, really. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't tire of it. I mean, is there, that's a really good question. It's, and it's funny because, um, and maybe this is not actually a particularly useful thing to say, but when we talk about politicizing our food and we talk about um, how do you project a message on the plate, 
um, you know, uh, you know, certainly like like I just mentioned, sourcing is a really big issue, and like there are a lot of reasons why you would source an ingredient from a particular place. Um, uh, some of them are political, and some other, uh, some aren't. You know, and and all of a sudden, but you know, I work at Salon, which is primarily a news and culture site, and uh, you know, the TV is on behind me, and people, you know, people from the right and left are screaming at each other all day long. And I think about that too. I think about well, what does it mean to be well, what does it mean? I'd rather, I think about politics in those in those uh, terms a lot, and primarily in those terms even. And what does it mean to be serving food that would be politically acceptable uh, to one group of people and another uh, versus another? You know, like it's so funny that arugula somewhere along the line became <laughs> this sort of, you know, it became this sort of like shorthand for, oh, you're this feet you know, liberal elitist from the coast, and you're not a real American. I don't know what the, that's, that's a combination of the two things. But yeah, I, I yeah. think I think that also right. extends to you know how we actually choose to manipulate or not manipulate our food. I mean, I think there's there's kind of been a, a certain rift in the um, the shoppers who who tend to pick the best ingredients and do nothing to them, um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have the uh, manipulators who are pureeing and dipping it in liquid nitrogen and and actually there are some great people and, and actually francis and i uh sat together uh at a dinner uh from sean brock from mccrady's yeah. in in charleston just a few weeks ago and i think he's one of those great exceptions where he's 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 mastering both both ends of the spectrum he's he's growing his own food and he's also putting sort of a very contemporary spin on it um but i think there is there is a, a politicized aspect oh, yeah. to um you know, I famously had at, at Chez Panisse, I've had as dessert a bowl of um, dates and tangerines. <laughs> yeah. um, and is that shocking or is the opposite where you have 13 ingredients on a plate that have, you know, gone through all kinds of manipulation? Is that shocking? Um, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 all about context and, and your point of view. I mean, but you've never put arugula like uh, a croquant in dessert and someone's marched back in the kitchen and said excuse me sir but i am not a liberal you know when you put bacon ice cream on the menu though yeah um you you see those two camps come out you see people who are like bemused and befuddled and the people who want um a pint to take home yeah <laughs> you know especially in a fine dining you know that's why i said you know that it's it's funny to see irony enter the the fine dining scene because you know, yeah. yeah you can be served pop rocks in a in a four star restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's the whole theater of it. You know, uh, Michael was mentioning how it's kind of a choreographed script, and uh, you know, there there's a character arc to the meal. There there are you know how many uh, acts? Five acts to a Shakespearean play. So there are how many to a tasting menu? Twelve, fifteen, twenty. Might as well pair them with emotions and different sensory elements other than the same, you know, rote idea of lifting utensil down to plate, into mouth, chew, masticate. But, and, it, and it's cool because there are, are interesting ways you can marry that, that tasting menu format with that physiological, um, sensorial thing that we have as humans. Uh, I remember before Lenny opened, when, when Grant Eckett's was still at Trio, and, and we started talking about... Um, you know, those long format tasting menus and, you know, where do you intersperse bits of sweet? Um, and, you know, cause the pastry chef always gets screwed in yeah. that situation. <laughs> um, and he's like, well, 
doesn't it make sense to have and he, he he kind of coined this term rolling hills where you kind of have three or four little mini progressions and, and peaks and valleys over the course of 20, 20 course meal rather than a build up a build up a build up a really big rich protein and red wine and then a drop off right. to a couple of you know probably ignored dessert yeah, courses exactly right. so I mean you know there is a lot of uh, a lot of room to play with with ideas excellent well I just wanted to thank you both as we unfortunately have run out of time but definitely have enough fodder for another show thank you Francis so much for calling thank in you. next time we're going to have to get you in the studio um, Michael Lasconis, pastry chef Le Bernardin. Stop by, see him, see a you know theater on a plate, and uh, maybe taste pleasure, taste emotion. Um, stop back Tuesday, three p.m. Listen to the food scene, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Just want to thank our producer Jack Insley, engineer Dan Brindell, and again, TechServe. Shout out to you. Remember, next Tuesday at three. Hope to see you there.